All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck Nicks? What the fucksters? This is Mark Marin. Uh, this is WTF. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. I just realized sometimes when I do that, how, what the fuckers? What the fuck? You know, like, I, I mean, I've been doing that a long time. And uh, there are moments where I'm like, wow, that just, I just annoyed myself. But, but I keep doing it because it's a signature thing. I mean, if I started taking away all the little things that I do on a regular basis, what am I left with? If I take away all the ticks and habits and uh, recurring bits of business that I've been doing most of my life, or at least my life, public life on this show, what have we got? You know what I mean? We don't want you guys, those things protect all of us from what's inside me. <laughs> you you got to have your ticks and habits and idiosyncrasies and repetitions just so you don't fall apart. So today on the show, music producer and musician Don Was. Don Was, you would know. You would see Don Was. You know what Don Was is. You know who he is. Was not Was, was his band. Uh, but he's also a prolific producer. And now he's the, uh, he's the president of Blue Note Records and doing some cool things over there. But this was a good conversation because he's worked with the Stones exclusively. Uh, a lot. I don't know. Not exclusively. Why do you even use that word? But... But he produced the last one, Blue and Lonesome, and he's worked with the Stones before, and I'm a Stones person, so I'm just giving you Stones people a head up that there's some good chat about producing the Rolling Stones and also about working with the Stones, but there's also some good talk about uh, remastering and stuff, the music talk. But I, I was engaged, and I like it, and I like seeing him in my garage because he was always, he's always one of those guys, a bass player generally, and you kind of see him in backing bands here and there over the years. He's got these dreads and this little beard, and he usually wears sunglasses and a hat, and you're like, there's that guy, and it, I talked to that guy, and he's done a lot of stuff, and it was kind of a, a great talk. So that's happening. That's happening today momentarily, all right? I do want to tell you about my experience at the SAG Awards, if you didn't... Well, I mean, what you can only watch so much. But first, out of the gate here, some guy called me out here in an email. Subject line, Radio Shack? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Hi, Mark. Uh, going to Radio Shack to acquire the parts to fix your cable re- will require a time machine. I could tell you how to build said time machine, but it will require a parts list from Radio Shack. Good luck. Love the show. I hope the transition to your new home goes smoothly uh, from here on out. Sincerely, Bowser. Uh, Yeah, I did say I was going to Radio Shack on the last show. And not only did I say I was going to go, I went to where the Radio Shack was, knowing in my brain that all the Radio Shacks are gone, but seemingly some part of me unwilling to accept that all Radio Shacks are gone. You didn't go to Radio Shack much, and a lot of times what you bought there was relatively disposable because you'd buy too many of them because you're trying to fix something yourself uh, or, or whatever. Uh, but, but it was a sort of, a, a constant, but, uh, that radio shack is gone. And if you want to get that stuff day of, you know, it's hard. You can get it day after on Amazon, I guess. I guess everything happens quicker, but what happened to the journey? What happened to the journey folks? That's what we're missing now is that, you know, I got to get a thing. I got to see what store has it. Where is that place? Are they open? Uh, let's drive over there. Maybe we'll get something to eat on the way. Oh, shit, it's not here. But look, there's this store. I wonder what's in this place. Remember that? Remember getting out in the world and doing things? Remember where, you know, uh, a sort of a shopping rabbit hole could actually require a car? You just go and you're like, God, oh, we passed a place. It looks like it might have that. Let's go there. Holy shit, I didn't even know this was here. Did you know this whole thing? Here's what happened to that? Gone. Human engagement with the outside world. Gone. Sad. 
And I'm not grieving for Radio Shack. And then there was that brief time where they tried to call it the hut. or Oh, no. Radio hut? No, the shack. Where are you going? Go in the shack. Pick up a plug. <laughs> they tried to hipsterize Radio Shack to save it. Let's go down to the shack. Get some batteries. Let's hang out at the shack. Gonna get some uh, blank cassette tapes at the shack. See again, I used to go. To, I used to go down there get blank cassette tapes. They had the Memorex brand, the Ultras, and the High Tech, and then they had the Radio Shack brand. Oh boy, back in the day, used to go out drive. I did some. I did do some uh, driving to do a thing today for Lori Metcalf. There's a there's a deep uh, there's there's a tease for you. What is that? What's that story about? Uh, maybe I'll tell you. All right. So what was I saying? Oh, the SAG Awards were very exciting. They were very fun. As some of you know, uh, I lost. I was not expecting to win. I you, you know I was up against you know William Macy who won. Come on. And there were other people too. But I wasn't expecting to win. I was just I was actually excited to be nominated and to be at this thing. So many of the people have been on this show, but it's all actors and it's almost like a community event. They, these awards were decided by the community of actors. They were voted on by actors and it's an actors event. Uh, there, there's a lot of celebrities there, sure, but it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a, like a, a, a business event or a producer's event or an agent's event or a critic's event. It's just a room full of actors and people who are related and connected to these actors. And it was very exciting. Because uh, I like looking at celebrities. Everyone knows that. But I, I did, I got to be honest with you, and it's not, I'm not tooting my own, own horn. I was happy to be there with a purpose. I felt part of something. Glow was nominated for ensemble and stunt work, and I was nominated for best male actor in a comedy, and uh, Allison was nominated for best female actor in a comedy. So it was very exciting. We were all at the table, and uh, right behind me, Susan Sarandon was sitting next to Gina Davis. Um, I saw Lori Metcalf was over ne- at the Ladybird table, and so was Greta Gerwig and Tracy Letts, who I interviewed, who will be on the show soon, uh, who I love, Tracy Letts. It's a funny story about Tracy Letts. I don't know if I'll tell it now or, or when his episode is on, but, uh, it, but it, everyone was there. Everyone was there. And, you know, I said hi to Susan Sarandon. She's been on the show. We had a little chat, said hi to Greta Gerwig. Like, I felt okay saying hi to these people. I didn't feel okay for some reason at the Critics' Choice because I thought, well, who am I? Do you know what I mean? Even though I was nominated, I don't know. It's it's not humility. It's just insecurity. But uh, for some reason in this room, I was very excited to say hi to everybody. And I didn't. I met some people. I saw some old friends. Saw Matt Walsh over there. Veep won for uh, Best Ensemble. Beat us. But I was happy to see Matt. Hadn't seen him in a while. I saw um, Sam Rockwell. He's been on the show. He knew He's winning everything. It's great. He was sitting at the next table over with the three billboards table. Uh, he gave me a big hug. I gave him a big hug. Congratulated him. The first joke or the second joke that Kristen Bell made was about Glow and about my podcast and it got a big laugh. Again, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just, I feel like, uh, I feel like I was there because I belonged, not because I was a guy that just interviewed people. It was, uh, it was exciting. It was fun. I liked, I, I liked seeing everybody and I liked that they, that they knew me. And I liked that not only did they know me because they'd been in my garage, but they knew me because, you know, I was nominated for a thing. I don't know why I don't think that, uh, I, I don't, whatever. My, I wore my suit, I went with Sarah the Painter, and I felt part of, part of, man, part of a community. I'm, a, I'm part of the community of comics, which I've always been. Last night, I was behind the comedy store hanging out with Bill Burr, smoking a cigar with some old pals from the Boston days, Jackie Flynn and Al Ducharme. 
just hanging out, telling stories, holding a little court with Burr and the cigars and the Boston guys. The comedy, the rogues and gypsies of the comedy world are really my family, but it was nice to be in the acting world. Well, here's what, a, here's what happens. Outside of having a joke made about me, which I found very flattering, and chatting with uh, different people. Jason Bateman, I, I ran into him. He was very nice. He, and I ran into Jordan Peele, congratulated him. But I will tell you this story. So we're all hanging out at my table, the glow table. There's two tables, a table and a half of glow. And people have to kind of move through the room. There's thin little in-between tables. There's, there's, a little, there's not, there's not a, lot of, a lot of room. And then like all of a sudden, I'm standing up and I see uh, Francis McDormand. Uh, and a few people moving towards me. They need to get by me because I'm at the head of the table. They need to walk behind me and I'm standing up. It's on a break or it's before the show starts. And she's coming right at me. And I'm a big fan. And I, I respect her a great deal. And uh, I, I, I've always wanted to have her on the show. I was just going to step out of her way. And then I thought, like, just introduce yourself, man. So she's walking right towards me to get around me with all these people. And I said, uh, hi, Francis, I'm, and she goes, I know who you are, Mark Marin. I know who you are. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay. She goes, you were great on GLOW. You were great. I thought it was, a, I didn't, I don't usually watch things, but I started watching it and I watched it and you were great. I mean, everyone knows that guy. Everyone's known one of those guys. So like on some level, she liked Glow. She thought I was great in it as an actor. So I won. I won at the SAG Awards. I won. Frances McDormand uh, made me a winner. I, and I'd love to have her on the show. And Willem Dafoe actually uh, uh, you know, chatted with me this time. Like that, Remember I said at the, at the Critics' Choice, I thought like maybe he didn't. I didn't think he registered. But we had a nice chat on the red carpet waiting to get pictures taken. I'm still a little bit of a who's this guy, but that's all right. You look, I, I'm completely... I'm. I'm I'm way ahead. It's all gravy. I didn't anticipate any of this, and and uh, it was a it was a good time. It was a really good time. I'll tell you. Oh, I want to, <laughs> I want to tell you this. So Robert De Niro's there, right? After the SAG Awards, you go basically next door to a bigger to another room where they have the party, and uh, you kind of move in through you know this one door, and then there's there's separate areas. There's like booths and there's food and whatever. So I walk in with Sarah and like Robert De Niro's just sitting on a couch there, uh, you know, talking to another guy, and I'm like, oh my god, this is Robert De Niro, and Sarah's like, you should go introduce yourself. I'm like, no, what am I? Gonna, I'm not gonna what? I'm gonna and interrupt Robert De Niro to do what? What am I really, what am I going to, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to introduce myself to Robert De Niro or tell him he's, whatever. I just, it didn't feel right. And then I walk about another 10 feet. I'm like, all right, I, yeah, okay, maybe maybe I should go uh, introduce myself to Robert De Niro. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I figure I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go try. So I'm walking back to where Robert De Niro, he's sitting down at a little couch. It's a circular, it's around a, a pillar kind of thing. And there's a lot of people around, yeah, but everyone's moving. But he's just sort of there talking to another guy. And I'm walking towards Robert De Niro. And then I see a guy, maybe like five to 10 feet away, just standing there by himself. Uh, a dude just standing there, just, you know, not talking to anybody, big guy. And he looks at me and I look at him. And he, and he, you know, he, no, he acknowledges me. So I walk over and he introduces himself as this guy, Chris Sullivan from uh, This Is Us. He said he was a fan of my work or whatever. And he's just standing there. And, and then I realized, I'm like, are you, are you waiting to try to say hi to Robert De Niro? He's like, yeah, kind of. And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't realize there was a line. He's like, How, what are you going to do? He's like, well, I'm just going to wait for my window. You know, there's a wait for my, 
<laughs> and I'm like, I was going to do that too, but I think I'm going to keep moving because I don't really think we should. It was just such an awkward thing. I'm like, you go ahead and do it. I'll do it another time. Maybe another event. I don't, you don't, you don't want to be a, a line of people trying to act nonchalant, you know, six feet away from where Robert Nero is talking to a friend of his. It's just like, you know, a growing mass of people. Me, some other guy, another guy steps up. It's like, yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of waiting. <laughs> Not even talking to each other, just kind of like acting like nothing's going on. So, needless to say, I did not meet Robert De Niro. I hope Chris did. So, uh, maybe maybe he'll let me know. So, anyways, okay, let's get on with it. I'll remind me to tell the Tracy Letts story. How, how are you going to remind me? You're the listener. I'll tell it when he's on because it was kind of funny, but it ties into something he said at the end of his conversation with me. Anyways, Lori Metcalf left her hoodie here. Her Steppenwolf hoodie. So I had to go out into the world because uh, she needed it. She went to New York to do a play and they were going to do a photo shoot and she needed it to do. They wanted her to wear a thing and uh, it's her favorite hoodie. So I went down to the post office and I overnighted uh, uh, Lori Metcalf her hoodie. I got out in the world. You people think that I'm, I'm a yeah, mid-level celebrity. I don't have people running around doing things like that and I like to do it. I'm, I'm just supportive of getting out in the world to do mundane errands, uh, you know, buy things, whatever. Oh, you're probably going like, why didn't she use stamps? Why didn't she use the stamps? Why didn't she use the stamps for the overnight? Don't call me out on the stamps.com. I need to, I need to do, it need to be there tomorrow. So Lori could have her hoodie. Anyway, Don was. I enjoy this conversation. It's a music conversation. As I said, you may know him from the guy with the hat and the dreadlocks and the beard and the sunglasses. He was in Was Not Was. Uh, he was. He's a big uh, music producer. He's a bass player, and now he's the president of Blue Note Records. Uh, and they've uh, just launched this Blue Note Review Volume One: Peace, Love, and Fishing. This is a. It's a box set subscription series, and it's limited to a production of fifteen hundred sets. You can get it at BlueNoteReview.com. Uh, so volume one just came out. I think they're going to come out twice a year. I got it. It's a beautiful box. It's got a, a, a reissue of a Blue Note record. It's got uh, a new record of live performances. This one had uh, different ones. It's got some other stuff in it, some pictures, uh, a scarf. The, yeah. It's Anyway, we'll talk about it. This is me and Don Was. <laughs> So you're 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 Don was you're the guy. I'm a guy, yeah. <laughs> but you're the guy I've been seeing like there in the background for my whole life. Who's that guy on bass? What's that guy doing? The zealot of yeah. rock and roll. Who's yeah. that guy? There's that guy again. And then people mention you. Oh yeah, Don was on that one. Oh that yeah. guy. <laughs> you're like always there. Your presence. Where'd you Where'd you grow up? I'm from Detroit. Really? Yeah. What's the real name? Faginson. Faginson. Yeah, it's too close to Donald Fagan. What kind of name is Faginson? It's uh, it's an Ellis Island name. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, like they all are. But what's the background? Uh, my grandfather came over from Russia. Family uh, family legacy. Yeah, which I don't think is true, by the way. But yeah. the legacy is that he said they said, "What's your name?" He said, "Vergussen." Vergussen. Yiddish for, for forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! Because uh, yeah. he, he was pretty sure the czar was going to come over here and take him back. Oh, oh. <laughs> so he was, he was just saying, like, yeah, just let it be nothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but I don't think that's true. They're actually the name exists in Russia. My, I've uh, come from uh, Russian Jews. Yeah, yeah. Where, from where? From uh, oh, what? You know, I just looked it up. Now I can't remember. But uh, yeah, my 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 
father's side's Russian. And my my grandmother's Polish, Polish and Russian, mostly. We're on it. We're the yeah. We got <laughs> that's it. Probably that, cousins. That's, that's one of the brand. That's a, that's a brand of Jew. <laughs> That comes over the American Jew, Polish, Russian, or the darker ones, the, the Sephardic ones, who the swarthy ones. But uh, well, yeah, man. So Detroit. So was it? So what? How the whole family comes from Detroit? Your grandfather moved to Detroit. My, my grandfather moved to Detroit. All my grandparents moved, and my mom and dad. Were really? Because I, yeah. I don't think I've met a, a full clan of uh, or heard about a full clan of Detroit oh, Jews. Yeah, no, we're they're at, like yeah. fuck New York. Yeah, no, I think you got to be uh, you got to be my age. I'm 65. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, right. Uh, but but Motor City. So like. What was going on? How many siblings you got? I got a sister. Yeah. Uh, she's the, uh, what is her gig? She's the uh, official statistician of the United States of America. Oh, really? Yeah. She still got a job? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's, it's not a she's, government job? Is it a government job? It is a government job. Uh-huh. I better not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get it next. <laughs> it, it, well, yeah, right. We got a president that only likes numbers a certain way. Yeah, yep. in his favor. Yep. But uh, so what What was it like in Detroit in the fit? Like, because I just saw the movie Detroit and it was not yeah. good. Yeah, I well, mean, the, the movie was good, but yeah. it seemed horrible. To, uh, no, was, like a it, war zone in the 60s. Well, that week, yeah. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a great place to be a person of color, but right. you know what is? You yeah, know I mean? right. Uh, you know, uh, I, your show with Benny Maupin was great, and Benny talked a lot about growing up in Detroit. He's yeah. he's about twelve years older than me. Yeah. So uh, you know, take out Yusuf Latif and put in MC Five and the Stooges. Uh huh. Right. You got the era. That, that, I come that, from. Oh yeah. yeah. The, the Stooges other side played of, in my high school. Yeah. The other side of town. It was your yeah. high school. Yeah. That famous high school. Didn't yeah. they? Did they do it a lot? Because I know there's one. Yeah. Where there's the, pictures of. Yeah, that's not that one. I oh. went to Oak Park High School. Yeah. But they they played a sock hop or something. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that? Are yeah. you making it up? I I don't think so. Were you there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's kind of there, yeah. What year? That's physically sixty-eight, maybe sixty-nine, somewhere in there. Yeah. So they were just making that. No, like, where, did they have a? Set? They were a local did, band, you know. Bob right. Seeger played in my high school. So, but like Parliament Funkadelic played in my junior high school. Stop they, it. Well, they were called the, the Parliament. Oh, okay. And they, but that they, must have been before they, they broke it open. Like oh yeah, no, they, they lip synced. I just want to testify. They came with a DJ from a local AM station, and and they moved like the Temptations. But they were dressed like hippies, and they blew everybody's mind. I really bet you they did. Really something. Yeah. So, but that was. But they didn't do any long, sort of spaced out kind of synthesizer. No, 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 jam. no. They, no, they lip synced straight to forty-five. Up. I heard that that was not an uncommon thing. The lip syncing. You know, I talked to uh, Hunt Sales, yeah. and him and Tony yeah. Yeah. were like kids, yeah. and they do the lip syncing gigs. You had to. There were no PAs. Or <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't. You couldn't set up a band. You'd go with the DJ. Yeah. It was a kind of an early form of payola. Uh huh. A DJ would get a gig at a sock hop. Right. Know, maybe right. Get a hundred fifty bucks for showing up and emceeing. And all the kids and loved the DJ. The kids loved the yeah, DJ. Right. But the bands played free. Yeah. And he'd play the record. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no speed. No PA needed really. <laughs> no PA needed. <laughs> I can't believe the Stooges. That must have been something at that time. They're badass, man. They were, they were right. Yeah. I mean, like, what were they doing? Like, the, were they doing covers? I mean, no, were, no, they were doing that. You know, I'm they were doing that dog. Thing. The first album. Yeah. They were Did people yeah. look just like, well, what the fuck? What the fuck is happening? Or were they already no, accustomed no, to? No, it, it was the Detroit thing, man. There, yeah. There, there was a whole, you know, 
Stooges and the Five were like it. The, a, a really uh, pivotal experience for me was one night we went down to Joel Landy's print shop uh-huh. where he, he printed up the uh, the Fifth Estate, which was the local underground paper, the yeah. guy I went to high school with. And the MC5 were there, or members of the MC5. Yeah. I know Wayne was there jamming with uh, members of Pharaoh Saunders' band. Wow, yeah. Now, <laughs> I know I, I, I didn't even have half my wits about me that night, but I do know that... I never heard anything like that before. Yeah. Or really after, you know, sure. it right. required those individuals <laughs> under those circumstances. Right. The one-time thing. It was a one-time thing, but it was a it was the it was a first and that really stayed with me, you know, make, yeah. make something that no one's ever heard before. That's a sure. that's a really good thing to do. Yeah, if you can do it, Right, if you can do, you can do it. <laughs> sure, well, then, but, then, but, got, is, but is, it's is, not easy. But you but, got, but uh, is selling it a part of that equation, or no. that doesn't matter? <laughs> well, I don't know. I I believe that if you do original, soulful stuff, yeah. that, that comes from an honest place, yeah, that's your best business plan. Sure, I and mean, people will yeah. dig it. Someone will. Yeah, but like like the more I talk about it, and just thinking about it right now with you, it seems that uh, that that Detroit was equally as important to American music on some levels as New Orleans. In a way, yeah. I don't. I, I know uh, my friends from New Orleans will take umbrage at well, this, well, they, but, I, they, but I'm a hundred percent with you. Deeper Here, history, why. deeper De- history in New Orleans, right? But but, uh, but Detroit, Detroit yeah, deeper history. But Detroit to uh, modern music to rock and roll after World War II. Yeah. It, people came from not just all over the country, but all over the world to work in the auto factories, make those cars, and they brought their cultures yeah. with them. And that was the beauty of growing up when they actually made cars yeah, in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, right. Was that you heard every kind of music and when people would come together and combine the music yeah you'd get incredible stuff sure so I, man. I was really fortunate to grow up in a uh, in that time yes it was a huge industry huge man yeah yeah, no, it was amazing, yeah man. We're making the yeah. cars yeah for the world for the world motor city yeah and then there, <laughs> i guess i guess some of that i mean i don't know if that's more of a metaphoric or poetic idea that some of that like kind of like that that groove of a you know making machinery like you know assembly lines i don't i don't think that really made its way into the music necessarily here's, here's what i think made its way into the music is that everybody who's was from detroit in a yeah. period of time came from a situation where their fate was inextricably tied to the auto business. So, for Through example, family? M- my parents were both teachers, right? Yeah. But if auto sales were down, they'd lay off workers. Workers would move away to another city yeah. to find new work. Yeah. And so there'd be fewer kids in school, so they'd lay off teachers. They'd lay off barbers. Yeah. They'd lay off waitresses. So everybody was in the same boat, and there was really no point in putting on any airs, yeah. you know, because everyone knew the story. Right. right? So... No one was renting Mercedes. <laughs> I never saw a Rolls Royce till I got out here. I, they, there was maybe one limo in Detroit when I was, and it's probably like parked at the airport or something. I, I ne- you never yeah. saw that stuff yeah. because there was really no point in uh, pretending you were something else. That's the beauty of it. So you get a really honest population. Yeah. And the music and the art and the culture of Detroit reflects that. It's It's basic and it's raw and it's for real yeah john lee hooker to me is the epitome of detroit music when did you start playing uh in the in the uh in the late 50s uh, when i was you know in like six or seven uh-huh uh, always dad. bass no i was a, a piano and guitar yeah and uh and then you know like a lot of guys my age 
I was born in 1952. We were 12 when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Right. Yeah, I hear about this, and that moment. That's it, you know. And at 12, <laughs> you would, you know, you looked at it and you thought, wow, I could use that edge with chicks, right? <laughs> That's what everybody says. Like I, I got <laughs> a, little, a little help yeah. would, would go a long way. Yeah. And uh, at 12, you're just dumb enough to think that you can actually pull it off. Uh-huh. If you were a little older, maybe you'd have said, well, I'd like to do that, but maybe I should get that law degree to fall back mm-hmm. on. And if you were eight, it didn't register. Right. So a lot of musicians my age, an inordinate number of people born my year, and I really attribute it to that. So we started forming rock and to, roll to, bands. To and the Beatles on Sullivan. You're like, that's our window. Absolutely. We yeah. just got to wear the same clothes and play okay and we can get girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed that way. It's a little more complicated, but, uh-huh. uh, uh, but it, it kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the first band? First band was called the Saturns, uh-huh. and we won a, a local TV talent show. Uh, originals, covers, what? We, we'd had some originals. Uh, yeah. We weren't very good. I think we covered, uh, we did Let's Twist Again uh-huh. by Chubby Checker. and uh, Not the twist, the tw- Let's Twist Again like we did last like summer. Like we did last summer. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, people uh, are already twisting. <laughs> yeah, people are twisting, and we, we won. We, we won. just want to make sure they keep them twisting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you want to be part of that. That's right. Yeah, That's and right. you won. Yeah, yeah, and we won. Did you we do won. a record? We won. No, we won a, a portable TV set. <laughs> Four guys, one TV set, and uh, so we sold it at uh, the drummer's dad had a drugstore. We sold yeah. it for sixty bucks. Yeah, and what'd you do with that? Split it up. Probably bought, Fair and Square. probably bought records. Sure, man. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 then what? Did when was the when did you start? Uh, like, did, did you do you do any records with bands before your bands? Uh, right before no, like it, was not was yeah, like way back. No, it was hard. You had to you had to earn your way into a studio. Yeah, you know. Oh, really? Well, you didn't you have. Couldn't a, just pay. You, no one had a back garage band on right. a laptop. Sure. You know? So you had to have some money. Yeah, and you had to have get some, a backer. Have a hit, have a song. Someone Something, wanted to man. move. Well, you had to earn it. You had mm-hmm. to earn the slot. And so I was just, I was just playing a lot. I, and uh, ultimately, uh, took a class in engineering uh, where they taught everything wrong, but it got me in the studio. Oh, really? <laughs> Wait, how old were you? I was probably in my early twenties at that point. After high school, did you After go to college? Yeah, I went to University of Michigan for a year. But yeah, I, but I in Ann Arbor. I, in Ann Arbor, yeah. That's a good town. It's a great town, man. Yeah. But this is like, so you're like Kramer and those guys, they're a little older than you, right? By what? Two years. Or that's something. it? Yeah. yeah. So but that's, you, a, that's a big difference in that, uh, you know, when you're, it's difference between being 14 and 16, you know. In the si- late 60s. Yeah. I guess, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you were of that age, so, you know, you saw the culture kind of breaking apart. Oh, yeah. You're old enough to, yeah. you are born in 54, 52? 52, yeah. So I was born in 63. So yeah. by 65, I mean, you're wide awake. Yeah, oh, yeah. You just saw yeah. the whole thing, the wheels come off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, it, <laughs> and, was, it was an exciting time. You know, uh, not, uh, not too dissimilar to this time in many ways, but uh, the... The the uh, the counterculture has not quite manifested the way it did then. But well, that, no one goes outside anymore, man. It takes a lot to get people out, and also everybody does, can live yeah. in their own fucking world on their computer. They can just cherry pick the community they're in if they're in any at all. Going outside is the 
is the thing. Yeah, go to the thing, not like, ah, how far away is it? Is there going to be parking at the yeah. protest? <laughs> how are we going <laughs> to... Let me check ways. Yeah, yeah right. Tens jam. Yeah. No, it, looks like, it doesn't look like we're getting in. <laughs> but uh, but did you go? Were you part of that? Did you go oh, to those yeah. MC5 shows? And yeah, the, went to MC5 shows. I went to anti-war uh, yeah. riots. Because like Sinclair was sort of out there and he was doing... John Sinclair. Yeah. He, he, was, he was my hero, man. He's still, we're still good friends. Yeah, I love John. Oh, yeah, he's yeah, still around? He was the guy. He was the leader of the city, man. He was, of the yeah. counterculture. Yeah. 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 And like, the, so you were hanging out with that at his place? I was... Uh, on the young side, I couldn't move in. Right. To uh, <laughs> the comment with the <laughs> MC5 guys. You know, it probably saved you. The fact that you couldn't move in probably saved you a life of drug addiction and horror. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you made it out I, of that I one. dabbled anyway. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it you probably seem all right. was a good thing. Yeah, you seem clear You come out of it all right. Yeah, <laughs> you did all right. Yeah. You don't look too beat up. So, so you take this engineering class. Yeah. And, and and what happens? How do you get? Uh, I calm my way into a job at a studio and just started recording. In Detroit? And, yeah. And what studio? Who are you? Well, it was a guy named Jack Tan had a little place called Mastermind Studios, mm -hmm. $10 an hour, mm -hmm. on top of a, an abandoned, uh, like, the, it was the Westinghouse building. Yeah. And uh, we had these cardboard boxes and on the walls, and it was, it was funky, but it, it was making records. Yeah. Yeah. And who were you making records of? Oh man, just anybody who come through. You know, some jazz. Yeah. Uh, uh, the first session I did was for a, a jazz saxophone player named Sam Sanders. Someone just put it out, by the way. In, oh really? In, in the UK, someone licensed it, and it, yeah, it was the first session I ever did. Yeah. And you just were you just an engineer? I was just engineering it. Yeah. 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 Someone put it out because of you, or because it, everyone's putting out all. There's a, there's a, seems to be a, a, a tremendous global race on who can find the weirdest, most esoteric records to put on 180 gram vinyl exactly. or re-release of that, something. That's exactly what this is. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like I found one. I found one of Chet Atkins. <laughs> under his car didn't even mean to be playing for me I, like yeah. those acquired taste the out there shit yeah. like i like yeah. that just on when i'm doing shit yeah like sort of like where are we going yeah. you know you're like yeah. i think that a lot of that stuff people go like what the fuck is this if you're sitting there with expectations but mm -hmm. if you just let it roll you know you can kind of like edit okay well the stuff will jump out here yeah, a really uh important thing happened to me when i was about 14 mm -hmm. i was run driving around with my mom running errands and uh she left me in the car with the keys so yeah. I could play with the radio. Uh -huh. It was on a Sunday, and the local jazz station broadcast on AM on a Sunday. And I tuned into the station just as a, a song that I later discovered was part of the Blue Note catalog, Mode for Joe by Joe Henderson came on. Mm -hmm. And if you play that song, check out, I came in just as the saxophone solo was starting. Yeah. And he wasn't. it wasn't about notes. It wasn't about techniques. Yeah. He, he was like howling with anguish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, through the horn. Yeah. And, and he was speaking to me. I actually, I was 14, man. It, it, I was stunned to hear this. And he, it, well, just listen to the solo. Angry sax. Yeah, it was anguished. Yeah. Well, it, 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 he was in pain. You yeah. Know? And then the drummer, Joe Chambers, kicks in about 20 seconds. In, yeah. And the thing starts to swing like crazy. And, and he falls into the groove. Uh -huh. And the message that came through to me as a 14-year-old was, Don, you got to groove in the face of adversity. <laughs> and really, it, it really struck me. Like, what kind of music is this? I, yeah. I, I went out and I bought an FM, portable FM radio. Uh -huh. Just to listen to the jazz station? Yeah, just to listen to WCHD, yeah. And uh, yeah, I soon found that a lot of the music that was speaking to me was coming out of what was then a very obscure little label called Blue Note Records. 
Back then. Back then. And, and my buddies and I, we, we'd, we'd ride buses across town just to, just to hold the albums. You know, yeah. we, we couldn't afford them. They were four bucks. You yeah. Know, but you could, you could read the liner notes and see that you check the names because it was like a repertory company of, of musicians. So that was your first, you're a jazz guy at heart. I mean, because... Yeah, I, you know, it's, well, I don't really differentiate. I mean, Bob Dylan was super important to me. Uh, Stone right. was super important to me. Right, but, but, right. Um, but yeah, no, the jazz really spoke to me but it, from the time I was a young teenager. But it's interesting because that form, you know, you, you, you're you kind of a popular music guy, really, production-wise, right? As a, as a producer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, because like there, there there's a certain level of, of chops, and I, I don't know, you know, how much jazz you play... Not that much anymore, but I—that's I, how it came up, you know. I did—I played bars, played bebop in Detroit until oh, yeah? I was in my thirties, just really? playing bars. Did you play stand-up bass? Yeah, stand-up and electric. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So yeah. You, you, so you evolved. So you go to engineering school, but you're still playing. Oh yeah. When no, that's you, how I lived. Yeah. When did you yeah. pick up the bass? I picked up the bass when I was in uh, in high school because there were a couple of keyboard players who were better than me and a couple of guitar players who were better than me uh -huh. and there were no bass players uh -huh. so it was just a practical decision at the yeah. time you know although paul mccartney was a pretty cool bass player he was <laughs> and right? i could relate to what he was playing yeah you know ron carter was a mystery uh-huh uh, paul mccartney i was like this is genius and i can play these i things. can kind of do that yeah it's you can figure this out yeah i don't know where that yeah. other guy's going yeah, that, that takes some work <laughs> <laughs> all right so that so that was your thing you're playing behind who do you, do you any the the main person i worked with was like a hard bop piano player woman by the name of lenore paxton uh -huh. I, I played with her for 10 years and we just did bars in detroit and uh, mostly the, a club called bob and rob's lounge out, uh -huh. out, out in Clawson, michigan and i probably learned more about music from her than anybody for the rest did of my she life. record not really really, not really. yeah no, but 10 years just, you were with her yeah yeah maybe maybe longer even you know on and off uh, after, was you once, her and a drummer and horns, no yeah, horns. No, no horns. It was a trio, and the owner of Bob and Rob's uh, was a singer uh -huh. who had this kind of Dick Hames. Uh, he was good. Yeah, he, he was really good. Too good to be like owning just a bar in Detroit. Uh huh. And and he'd get up and sing with us. It was great, man. I love. It was a great period of time. We'd do four or five sets a night. I wouldn't know any of the songs. I'd have to. She'd start. And she'd help me a little bit with her left hand, pointing uh -huh. out what the chords were. Yeah. And then one time through, I better remember it because <laughs> she was taken <laughs> off. And it was it was great, man. It was great for building my ears and my and my chops, and uh, and for exploring things. And also the whole scene, man. Playing in bars is oh yeah, so much fun. You just yeah. you, I just walk around and and you just talk to the wildest people and hang out with them and it was really cool I, yeah. so you're doing that you're playing with her you're playing with other things yeah doing you, it, you, all kinds of stuff i played with a, a great a local folk musician named ted lucas once we had the, the the strangest booking we ever had was we had uh a multiracial folk band that somehow got booked to open for black sabbath <laughs> at, at uh, the toledo sports arena what year early 70s uh-huh and we didn't make it 
through the first song we were pelted with bottles and, and the drummer was bleeding and we stopped oh my god <laughs> but i met ozzy there we're, I'm so that was that. after like the second sabbath record something like that maybe I, the first yeah, first or yeah. second well they were on a u.s tour but it's pretty early on but they were big enough to sell out the toledo sports arena uh-huh <laughs> yeah so it must have been after that like you probably yeah they were probably a couple records in yeah it could have it could have just as easily been what, 74 it's how was it was it what was it like watching them at that point oh he's great man yeah. yeah, that's a great band. Yeah, it is a great, a great band. band. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Ozzy ended up singing on a Was Not Was record. He did? He <laughs> sings. I'll tell you a story, man. They, we had a song that none of our singers could sing. Uh-huh. And so Michael uh, Zilka, who ran Z Records, said, there's this wonderful girl from Detroit. You should use her. She's going to be a very big star. Yeah. And it was Madonna, right? Right. Before she put out her first record, so we recorded her. We spent a couple of days doing it, and she was great, man. Yeah. I loved her. She was really sweet, and she worked real hard. But it didn't sound like was not was. Right. And I said, Michael, we we, we can't put this out. Yeah. <laughs> he said, You're making a huge mistake. She's going to be very big. I said, No, man. She's a disco is this, singer. Wait, is this the first record you're talking? This is uh, it was uh, Born to Laugh at. Tornadoes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A song called "Shake Your Head." Okay. Yeah, it's on the second album, the Geffen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we took her off, and then it was like, "Well, what are we going to do now?" So my attorney also represented Ozzy. Uh huh. And he said, "Well, call Ozzy." And Ozzy did it. <laughs> <laughs> now years later, we had Ozzy and Madonna on parallel tracks, and so we redid it as a uh, duet with Ozzy and Madonna, and. To her credit, Madonna nixed it, <laughs> and Kim Basinger came in and sang it. And it's actually, it was our outside of the United States. It was our biggest hit single. Ever. Which one? It's called "Shake Your Head," duet with Kim Basinger and Ozzy Osbourne. And what? Kim was so sweet, man. She flew to London and she did a video with us. And Kim Basinger's not known for that kind of thing. Uh, well, she can sing, man. She's yeah. she's a wonderful person, man. I, I don't I don't think people have a clue as to how. how well, I just she know her as an actress. I don't know yeah, if she's a singer. Lovely, yeah. yeah, good yeah. singer. All right, yeah. so, but well, but that record it seems like you had you had Mitch Ryder on there too. Yeah, Mitch and Kramer Ryder. was on there. Wayne's Wayne. on it. Yeah, Marshall Crenshaw's on it. Doug Figer from the Knack. Who's, wow, uh, yes. are they a Detroit band? Uh, yeah, well, Doug was. I was in a band with him when uh, when I was twelve. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, he's a good friend. Yeah, that I was in high school when that shit hit. Yeah, my Sharona. Yeah. So so all right. So you're playing these. You're playing all these different gigs with these people. So you put together was not was, and it was sort of what. What was the vision of the band, man? The vision of the band was to because uh, it's sort of a funk band, eclectic band. It was very eclectic. Although if you're from Detroit, it makes perfect sense. It's sure. just everything we grew up with. In fact, right. the first album had Wayne Kramer playing guitar and Marcus Belgrave, a great jazz trumpeter who played with Charles Mingus and yeah. Charles. He was playing trumpet. And we had guys from uh, P Funk playing Larry Fratangelo, the percussionist, right. on all those records was on it. So it, it was just an amalgamation of, of our roots of the uh, Detroit sound. Yeah, with David's lyrics on top, which were you know heavily influenced. That wasn't so Detroit. That was more Zappa and beat poetry and and him. He's a David was is a is an original man. There's no one like him. Is he still around? Yeah, he's around here. He lives in L.A. Oh yeah. 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 And and were you a Zappa guy? Love Zappa. Yeah. 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 Bought the first. I met him at the airport. They they were on a local uh, a TV show called Swingin' Time uh-huh. in Detroit uh-huh. in the '60s, promoting their upcoming Freak Out album, the first release. Yeah. And they, they went. On, they blew our minds. We saw that, and then I saw him at the airport the next day, 
and he gave me an autographed picture and stuff. So, all right, so you do, you work in, and then you, you put out the, in 81, Was Not Was record, the yeah. first one. Yeah. And this is where production in records gets a little odd, doesn't it? You mean in that period of time? Yeah, or? in the 80s where the style of production, like there's a lot more tools at hand. And, and Well, uh, it started, I mean, it, it was before the computer stuff. Right. But, no, we, but right. we did those things. Like we, they didn't have the drum machine, digital right. drum machines. Right. And, and they uh, they had like the little 808s were around that kind of thing. But what we did was we, we'd have a drummer come in first. Yeah. And play the beat that I had in my head. Right. And then we'd take the two best bars and you'd cut a tape loop, which is you'd take the two inch tape uh-huh. and you'd measure the start of one bar and, and cut it for two bars yeah. and cut on the bass drum right. on the next one. And then you'd tape it together into a circle. Then you set up these mic stands all over the control room and you'd keep running it through the cap stand and it would play over and over. Uh-huh. And that's that you didn't they didn't have samplers and and it was it was beautiful man and it, so it had the feel of a live steady. guy and it had the sound of analog tape and it was super steady yeah. and then we would build the tracks on top of that that's how you got your the groove the yeah. bass groove the yeah, the, the, the drums I, yeah. and then we build up from the drums right and uh, so you did you have but you'd put another live drum track on top of that yeah at the end you'd have a, a, a live put, human come in and play on oh, top, so you'd yeah. pull the loop out yeah. and then put the get the the live guy in after everything's set up yeah. that's sort of the backward way of doing it it's right? a terrible way of doing it it's much <laughs> but i didn't know how to do it any other way that's how that's just how i did it you know mainly because we didn't have the bread to uh, to pay for a room full of musicians sure so but, uh, in time, eventually, it, really, the first live band that I produced was the B fifty twos. Yeah, the, that record, Love Shack, I produced, and the, how many? Oh, in eighty nine. In eighty nine, is that, that is, right? And then I had to change my way of making records. I remember asking them, "Well, how do you know when it's the take? Because yeah. we didn't have multiple takes. So right. if you're building from a loop, there's only one take." And you, and this, this oh, because like you're yeah. just adding things. You're not actually yeah. playing together. You're just no, sort you're not of playing like, together. You're building on one. And that's piece how you did all those estate. records. You did all your records. All like the that. was no was albums were done like that. Yeah. How did you got? You had a couple of hits, right? Yeah. Later in the, we had some big hits. At yeah. The, at the end of the eighties. Yeah. 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 What was the big hit? Big hit is a song called "Walk the Dinosaur." Yeah. And yeah. One called "Spy right. in the House of Love." Right. And we had a few other ones in over in Europe. We were bigger in Europe. Right, so that yeah. was so so that was exciting. It's really exciting. It was fun. We and you toured. Yeah, we toured for years. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. And, and you just put out a uh, you put out. Didn't you guys get together again in two thousand eight? Which has now been like almost ten years. Isn't that wild? Like yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did one more album, which I, I actually think was our best record, and we and we toured then. And uh, I still get together with the guys, and we play. We do a show in Detroit every year. Uh, not uh, not everybody. But was that was that the dream ultimately, or did you always like was production always something you're like was that your law was that your your sort of like your fallback in your head that you know you had these other skills or were they all sort of coming together but, as, I, at the same time? I wasn't separating them out. You know, right. There was something that happened around the time of Sergeant Pepper, I think, where uh, where production techniques became a musical color. Yeah, and. And so that it, to me, it was another instrument. Uh-huh. It still is. You know, what you do in the studio is you don't approach it that differently from the way you play your instrument. So, right. but yeah, but you've sort of evolved a, as a, a producer over time. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're telling me that, you know, from 81 to 89, you know, you're not really letting them play live together. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, <laughs> well, hopefully you evolve, you know, over time. 
But like yeah. in in that time, you work with Carly Simon. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't know these Ward Brothers records. Uh, it's a British group. Carly, I, uh, Carly actually might have been a no. I think we cut it to a, a click. And then, yeah. And what about Bonnie Raitt too? No, Bonnie Raitt. No, Bonnie Raitt was just after the B fifty two. Oh, like so, a month so after. So you're like, guess what? You can all play together. I well, I got. Bonnie wasn't going to have it any other way. She can't. She cannot and will not play to a drum machine. Uh, and I learned a whole lot making Nick of Time, man, and just being around Bonnie because she's as soulful and honest and genuine a as a musician, as a singer, and as a human being as anybody I ever met. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's a real uh, yeah. uh, blues legend. Oh man, I love her so much. I, yeah. uh, you know, I, uh, she. Uh, I get so moved when I hear her sing. I, I, sometimes I can't play her records because I get too emotional. And I loved her long before I, I knew her. I I remember seeing her at the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival in, yeah. in, in it was 1969 or something. I bought her first album when it was new. And uh, I was just a, always a big fan. So it was a, a thrill to be able to make those four records with her. And it's still a thrill to play her Did you her do the one that has Angel from Montgomery on it? No, nah, I wish. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's Her cover other, of that is fucking insane. It's killer. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like Heartbreaker, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got to work with Iggy, too. And I like yeah. that record, yeah, Brick by Brick. Well, Brick by Brick, yeah, thank you, man. I've done a couple with them, yeah. What was the other one? Uh, it's called Avenue B. So, huh. That's a weird one. Is that, it? It's a beautiful album. It, it's an underrated album. It's I love I, the song. I won't crap out on brick by brick. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I dig that one too. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was a that was a fun record to make, man. So how how do you guys find each other? I mean, why why you? Why why do people like what do they when they were like I want that Don was thing? I don't. I don't come man. on, I man. really. I don't know. I guess because I had other records on the charts. Probably you know, it was nineteen eighty nine. It was in fact. Oh, because the B fifty two. Well, you know, in 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 fairness now. Yeah to him <laughs> I left the session from uh, I said uh, I, I gotta leave early I was, we're doing brick by brick and I left the session I said I, I gotta go to the Grammys yeah. I'm nominated for something I didn't even talk about it and that was the year we won best uh, album of the year for Nick of Time oh, yeah, so, yeah. I, so it wasn't like he was jumping on the bandwagon because there w wasn't really a bandwagon uh, so right. I would say that uh, that was the it, album of the year the Bonnie Raitt record yeah yeah, that was 1989. That's and I, exciting. And I was in the studio with Iggy, and I just I left, and they were looking on TV. <laughs> I didn't even tell them. It was why here. I was you going. were out here. We're out here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there it was, and then we just went back to work the next day. And what's he? You know, as a vocalist, you know, exclusively a vocalist, what's he looking for? You know, what's the relationship with him and a producer with you specifically? What was he looking for in that record? What were you going to do for Iggy Pop, knowing Iggy Pop, having seen him in high school? Did you tell him? Oh, yeah, no. I did, yeah. <laughs> well, he, you know something? He, as wild as he is on stage, he's also a very deep guy. You should have him on. I've had him on. Yeah, he's, he's very, oh, yeah, very thoughtful, yeah, intelligent yeah, dude. Yeah, brilliant. He, he's, he's surprising. He's like Keith, where you're like, oh, I get it. It's a character you're doing. <laughs> well, it's, alter, it's the other part of you. It's a part of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's for real. I don't right. think you can. Oh, no, no. You can't. Yeah, it's no. not like Alice Cooper or something like that where he'll tell you he's Right, right. I'm doing shtick. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's definitely that. Well, that's yeah. what, you know, Rollins said that to me. He said, you know, you, you know, you, 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 when you're talking to Jim, mm -hmm. it's different than Iggy. Yeah, you know, Iggy yeah. is Iggy, Jim's yeah. Jim. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you see where it comes from. You uh -huh. know? Uh, I think he just wanted good tracks. Yeah. You know? He just, you know, he wanted to make a quality record. Did he want to make a, like, because, like, there's, like, there's a single on there, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, you're it was thinking a big of, single. Uh, candy, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and 
he, was he thinking in terms of that? It because it doesn't seem like certain artists are ever really thinking in terms of that. But I imagine yeah. producers are always kind of thinking in terms of that. You want well, a single I'll tell, on a can record? Can I tell you something, man? I, I've always been a little uh, removed from popular, like top ten pop uh -huh. record. I've never. I don't really have a whole lot of hit singles uh -huh. that I've worked on. Um, so my orientation as a producer is just to try to get an artist with a great vision and help them realize it, uh -huh. whatever that vision may be. Uh -huh. And if I feel I can be of assistance, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll do, uh, do the record. And sometimes I think, I, I don't know how to do what you're talking about, and you should probably call this person. Oh, really? I'll, I'll buy the record the day it comes out. But who, 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 have, who have you sent away, oh, Don? I, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have declined. I, 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 I can't help you, man. <laughs> it does seem like there have been some people that you work with that were you know, a, on the other side of the arc of their career a little bit. Uh, in a way you know someone John Mayer once said to me how come you always do the album after the big one <laughs> and, and uh, he, now John's a he's a real good friend and yeah I love him and uh, yeah. I know he he was just being a bit of a pro, or he might just want to know the answer I don't just, know so just I, busting I, your balls I, away I, I didn't bust him in the chops uh -huh. asking but I thought about it and I thought well <laughs> got you thinking it's usually if, if you have some big hit single it, it may not be uh, an accurate uh, reflection of who you are. Oh yeah, and maybe people want to get back on track. Right. And I think that I think that's the kind of record I'm. Because you did that. Yeah. You sort of did that with Elton John, right? Yeah. 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 Played piano. He didn't play an electric piano. We got him on a grand piano, which uh -huh. at the time was something he was shying away from. Oh really? Yeah. And you did like well the your the Dylan record. What was that like? Well. Uh, you know, Bob's my hero. I, I I believe we were woefully unprepared to produce that record. Under the Red Sky? Under the Red Sky, yeah. I don't know if I know the record specifically. I don't know if it, I have the it's record. It's not hailed as one of his masterpieces. Yeah, uh, but, the, but there's a few of those. It's not your fault. <laughs> well, here, I'll tell you, here's, I can tell you what I did wrong on that. It's yeah. just that I went in thinking, all right, you know, let's make Blonde on Blonde Part 2 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right. And that's the furthest thing from Bob Dylan's mind is repeating himself. Right. It's the furthest thing from most great artists. Mind. Right. You know, they're, yeah. they're, he was trying to do something else. Yeah. There's the uh, assistant engineer ran a, a, a cassette of the talking on the between songs on the first session I did with him. And he said, man, you know, you may want to you may want to have this as a souvenir. And I, I, I plopped it in when I was driving home from the session and I landed right on a spot where Bob was uh, he was telling me something he wanted to do, and I was telling him why it wouldn't work before we tried it. Yeah. I waited all my life to work with this guy, man, my hero. Yeah. And I didn't even chase up his idea. And I pulled over. I wanted to throw up. I was so sick. <laughs> oh, no. But it was, yeah. it was a good lesson. But, yeah. Uh, and he, he, What you can hear in Under the Red Sky is the beginnings of what he later went on to do, which was this kind of rootsy American right music i think based, yeah, based in sort blues of a, and, a, yeah, the, the weird uh the 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 sort of ghost troubadour time traveler of americana that, music that's, that's actually a really good description man. and i think he would like that description <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he was trying he was headed that way and i was probably not helping him get there and i learned a lot from that I, I, um you guys are friends or no? Yeah, still friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like friends, friends, or like when he see him, he says, nah, hi. So, uh, uh, we just did something fairly recently that I can't talk about." But, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah how's but, he doing? 
he's great, man. And you know, I, I still I, I love his music so much. I I, I watch all his shows. I follow his tours on yeah. YouTube. There's always some someone yeah. with a with a phone, right, you know, right, taping it. And I think he's a great singer. Yeah, you you have to really listen you got to forget about the original versions of the songs yeah. but if you really listen to what he's doing he's inhabiting every word of those songs and approaching them with a beginner's mind a fresh mind every night and they ring true he's 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 a deep guy man <laughs> yeah, he's, and he's yeah. really a great singer no i agree with you <laughs> i i think that like there there are periods where you know he was doing something up there that was either out of uh uh, spite or 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 exhaustion but i always think it's funny that you know for years people be like i don't know what song this is i don't know what he's saying you know he'd do a whole tour like that right yeah what, i don't know what, what, what's going on and then he released a record of like crooning like you know completely clear perfect uh audible vocals and to yeah. me that's sort of like eh, i wasn't feeling it fuck you you know in a way i i love the sinatra records yeah the, yeah i think he's really found it's it, first of all it's really hard to tackle those songs and follow you can't follow frank's footsteps in or you're doomed right yeah so he's found a really a totally original and way to 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 inhabit those songs and and be himself right it's it's, it's brilliant man. well I, th I think like it's sort of it's a very interesting because i have to assume that you know he he doesn't need to tour other than for his own, you know, emotional and creative needs. But he tours because that's what he does. Man. Right. You play. That's right. Musicians right. play. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, his commitment to it at this point in his life and the way he, you know, is approaching it, which is sort of like a performance piece, mm -hmm. you know, every year, that this this particular manifestation of Dylan is sort of, it, it, it's very interesting and it's it's very sort of timeless. It's, I, I think he's great. I, uh, yeah, man. I mean, I saw him... I, uh, he did a, a that, that Desert Storm concert. Yeah. I, I love that show. But yeah. I love this tour that he's on right now. I I think he's delivering a hundred percent every night. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I agree with you. But like you know, obviously we can't go through everybody. But you know, you got to work with Seeger on a record that I don't know, The Fire Inside. Fire Inside. But you're yeah. just playing bass. Are you? No, no, I produced it. Yeah, and I play bass too. Yeah, yeah. Do you play bass on a lot of these? If asked, I never offer. You know, did some? You did some with. You did another with the B fifty twos. Glenn Fry, Detroit, rest yeah. his soul. Mm -hmm. uh, Roy Orbison, that must have been something. That's beautiful. He's a sweet guy, real good guy. And yeah. and when he opened his mouth, it's like wow. Uh, I, <laughs> oh yeah, Waylon Jennings did a country trip. And what was you did a you did the the Brian Wilson doc? I directed a documentary about. Brian I think Wilson. I saw that doc. It's, it's good. Called, I just wasn't made for these times. Yeah. yeah, it's heartbreaking. He's heartbreaking to me. Well, the, uh, just it, not not because it's he's sad. Yeah. It's just there's a couple of people, and I've said this before on the show, where I have a hard time listening to it because I can feel the vulnerability and the pain of it. Well, that's what makes him a great artist too. No doubt, no comes, doubt. But, but like some people hear the beauty of it, and for me, it's sort of like oh, when I hear it, I'm like, oh, he's so sad. Like it's so like yeah. it's hard for me to hear. Yeah, which I, is, I, I understand that. Yeah, it's, it, you don't, you don't. I think at his best, what he did was make kind of sad wistful songs with this great yeah. harmony and oh, up, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. upbeat thing right. underneath sure and you don't necessarily it's like hank williams kind of hank williams wrote the darkest saddest most depressing Oof. songs but yeah. he was going out playing roadhouses and he knew right. that people had to stay and drink right? right so he put you know cold cold heart 
You know, that's yeah. like got this this beat and it's uh, up yeah. and major key and stuff. And yet you listen to those lyrics. Yeah. But that was Hank's thing. We tried to, to copy that a little bit in Was Not Was, you know, that I, I tried to do music that would be the opposite of the lyrics. Uh-huh. It was based on a theory that if you had if you had a beautiful diamond and you wanted to show it to somebody, yeah. if you put it down on ice, you won't see it. You put it down on black velvet, yeah, people can see the diamond. Right. So I, I it was a device didn't always work. Sometimes right. it, you you go too far and it's just an well, it's alienation a, device. Sure, but it's an old blues device too, right? I mean, that's yeah. the the heart of it, isn't I it? I think it has to do with playing bars. You know, it, right? You you got to keep people drinking, or you don't get paid at the end of the <laughs> right. <laughs> and they don't ask you back. It's so. sort of like hard bop, like the transition from you know into interesting yeah. hard bop. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like you know, like maybe we can't go all the way out there. Why don't we tighten it up a little bit and give people something they can swing to? Well, that's very you know that's that's something I re- when, once I took the gig at Blue Note, yeah. I really had to figure out. Uh, I was hired to uh, move, continue the the aesthetic uh-huh. of the previous seventy three years, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So what is that aesthetic? Well, it turns out the uh, the guys who founded the label, Alfred Lyon, Frank Wolf, and a couple of their buddies, wrote this little manifesto. Oh, when really? They started in nineteen thirty nine, and they dedicated themselves to the pursuit of authentic music and to providing uncompromising freedom of expression. Right. That's the essence of the manifesto. Yeah. Right? But if you really follow the history of what they did, um, they they've just pushed the envelope in every era you know yeah. and they started doing like stride piano players but by ten, yeah. 10 years in they wanted to get into bebop yeah they chose monk of all the people man yeah. the, the, the most out there cat of yeah. the time but they made these incredible seminal records with right. Thelonious monk that changed the face of music changed the way people wrote songs changed the way people approached solos changed yeah. the way people voice chords and how you played behind a solos he's so uh so influential but they saw that and no one else was really seeing it at the time jump ahead to what you're talking about the hard bop stuff that was that was horace silver and yeah. art blakey art blakey's throwing in backbeats horace silver's doing this funky gospel stuff yeah and you couldn't do that at minton's playhouse you right. kicked off the bandstand for that that was revolutionary music you listen to it now it sounds pretty much uh, you know, it's become such a part of the musical vocabulary. Right. It sounds normal. But what? it was radical at the time. You jump ahead to the 60s. You got Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter yeah. making these modal jazz records reflecting what they were doing with Miles. That was, that was pretty radical. So what happened to Blue Note? Why are these, all these two... They're, they're Japanese-owned Blue Note for a while? Or what was that? Well, it's gone through a series of ownerships. But, you know, it, <laughs> it costs money every time you got a reissue a record you got to sure. remaster it and you got to do some yeah. their costs at the front yeah and there have been times when blue note's been owned by companies that haven't uh appreciated the value of the catalog and didn't want to invest in it so in those time were, there, periods, were there time periods where there were shitty reissues like you know quality wise yeah it, I, it's uneven yeah you know there, there's a whole philosophy to remastering i, I think it's something you can dramatically alter the character of a record when you remaster you don't want to do that though right no you don't man but a lot of people think uh, well let's improve it <laughs> we can improve but this now with the technology it's so we weird man it's so weird when people do that i know there are some rock acts that are sort of like oh let's you know let's reissue you know they can sell it again you can yeah. sell a thing you know nine times nine different formats i'll tell you a story we were 
we were in 1993 when I started working with the Stones. Yeah. They signed Virgin Records, and they were going to reissue the catalog, so everything had to be remastered. From the beginning? The whole catalog? Uh, no, no, the, from what they owned, which oh. uh, the, the pre-app, the post-app. Pre- post-app, post-app I, the yeah. first thing was, was Sticky Fingers yeah. and Exile were the first two. And so we got the original tapes and sent it to the the maestro of mastering yeah uh, whoever that is it's yeah. bob ludwig you know okay uh, he's was, he was a genius yeah and, you know just look at his discography it'll yeah. blow your mind man but we didn't give him any instructions yeah so bob went in and, and made it sound up to par with 1993 like added an octave a low end and stuff he 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 was doing what he thought the record company wanted but we listened to it and it, it you couldn't recognize it you know? oh. so what so, really, you listen to Sticky Fingers and be like, "What is that?" Well, it just it sounded different. Yeah, you know? no, not uh, really. Not Bob's fault. Right, he was he's he's the he's a genius. Sure. you know. Uh, but we'd listen. All right, what's wrong here? Well, let's put up the original tapes and see what we got. So we listened to the unmastered Exile yeah. and Sticky Fingers, and that doesn't sound like the way, the album you remember that that I remember that they remember. It doesn't. So th- no. It's because someone mastered it and did something originally. To it and that's originally, and that's how you heard it. You right. didn't hear it raw. They're all really different. Every song is different, you know. Yeah. Especially Exile, which was made all over the world. Did you work on that remastered Exile? I worked. I worked on two different versions of Exile. I, I didn't do the remaster. I did. I worked on the remastering in '93, and then a few years ago, yeah. we did a second disc of where they finished some yeah. unfinished songs and i worked on those yeah, yeah i got that yeah a couple of those songs are pretty good there's some there's some cool stuff yeah there, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely worth hearing yeah oh yeah it's great um so the, the so point... anyway so we so then we started we got all the cds together yeah. and you listen to all the different cds and the cassettes everything from yeah and they're all radically different and it turns out like some guy working a plant in germany at mid on the midnight shift decides to add treble <laughs> and that's the new sound of exile on main street you know going forward so we thought all right what are we going to do finally we answered an ad in goldmine magazine yeah um a guy had virgin vinyl copies still in the shrink wrap from 1972 uh, exile and he had a version of sticky fingers too uh-huh. so he brought it up to my house in mulholland where we were recording voodoo lounge not knowing that he was bringing it to mick and keith right yeah Which was, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that's when you wish they'd invented iphones earlier <laughs> you want to get that on <laughs> it tape? was great man but we put that on so wait he comes over with the records and you, you introduce him to the guy yeah what did he just melt yeah, yeah, no, it blew his mind. It was, it was great. It was one of the greatest things ever. <laughs> Could he talk? They're, they're, they're buying their own record from him. Could he talk? Could he even function? Yeah, he was cool. Yeah, yeah. and he, he he could function enough to know not to charge them for it, but to ask them to sign a dozen albums. Right. So everyone made out like bandits on the deal. So and, so what'd you do with those records? Well, you put it on and ah, there's Exile. So we sent that to Ludwig and we said, that this is what it's supposed to sound like. And he got it. This, and the... The remasters from '93 sound great because they adhere to the to the aesthetics of the original artistic impulse. So he didn't rip it from the wax. He just got this. He, yeah, he, no, they, he could he could hear, he hear it. what he, they, he understood what it was. Yeah. Oh wow! But, there was, but you have to have some frame of reference, and even the Stones didn't have a frame of reference. It sure, it had been so long. So I wouldn't expect him to with Exile no. or either of those <laughs> records. I'm, I'm surprised they have a frame of reference for that decade. <laughs> Uh, so I, same thing at Blue Note. Uh, I, when I but got it's so the, much more simple. I mean, you listen to not, some. Of, well, it's not. You know, but it's simple having gone through that exercise. But if you put up the unmastered tapes, it doesn't sound like the records you remember. Huh? 
but Rudy Van Gelder did his own mastering. Rudy Van Gelder, who engineered all, all those classic albums yeah. in the 50s and 60s. And not just for Blue Note, but he did the Impulse Records. He right. did Love Supreme. Yeah. So he'd master them, and there was a sound there that everybody liked. Yeah. But over the years, the the reissues get fogged. Sometimes they're, they're amazing. There's a company called uh, Music Matters that does our audiophile yeah. work, and it, they sound incredible. But they figured it out. You got to go back to the original Virgin vinyl that everybody approved, and match to the feel of that. So that's what we do. So now. listen to the record. Don't rip it from the record or yeah, don't the rip CD. It from the record. Just no. get a guy with good ears who's a genius yeah. at that shit to. Yeah to take it from the record because yeah. you know like there's certain things you listen to like i don't think it's a blue note record i don't know who who did the giant steps record giant step the coltrane that's on yeah. atlantic yeah so like you know i got the re the the new one the mm -hmm. vinyl on that it's yeah. a it was a 10 inch yeah. 45 speed oh. uh 180 yeah, gram right, thing right, right. and it sounds like it's in the fucking room it's so clean yeah there's no mess on it at all yeah and it just feels like it's just a balance thing. It's like, you know, like bring that up, that bring that up, level it out, and that's it. And was, is that, like, isn't that how a lot of that jazz was recorded? Well, the the Blue Note stuff that's considered to be classic was, they they cut it live to two tracks. Right. No, they mixed it as they were recording. Yeah. So you don't have the option of bringing it's up. It's great. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now. You just don't mess with it, man. That's really the thing is don't, don't impose yourself on the scene, man, you know. So what is what is the vision that you have for Blue Note? What is that thing I got in the mail that I listened to? Oh, the, the Blue uh, Note Review, yes. Well, the, the, the overall vision for Blue Note. It's a nice is, box. It's, yeah, you know, there's there's you. pictures in it. There's paper. There's a reissue of an old record. Then there's a new record that's recorded live. There's some. Uh, there's a scarf in there, I think. Yeah, John Varvatos designed yeah. a Blue Note scarf. We got <laughs> yeah. a magazine. Uh, uh -huh. The idea was, you know how we were talking about the liner notes for the Frank yeah. Zappa record? Right. And... and, and just my experience driving around Detroit on right. a bus trying to, right. trying to hold the albums to restore that kind of experience of holding something and connecting with the artist. Nice so, box. I was, I yeah, was, I, I didn't, I, whenever I get something like that, I'm like, should I even play it? Like, yeah, heck, I, yeah, heck yeah, you should play it. There's actually a, it's a, the centerpiece of it is an anthology of new tracks right. from artists on the roster that aren't available anywhere else. They don't stream. The live tracks, that. right? A no, a couple are live, yeah. Yeah, but they're whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, uh, but they're new and they've yeah. never come out. And uh, and in some cases were created specifically for the box. We're on box two now. We're making yeah. it. And that's all stuff recorded specifically to a theme f for the box. What's the theme? The theme is uh, the theme of of the album Second for box. box Two is uh, it's about Tony Williams the album mm -hmm. and Tony Williams great drummer played with Miles Davis mm -hmm. in the sixties and and really totally revolutionized the approach to drums. He made some great albums for Blue Note between uh, late eighties and early nineties right up until the time he passed away. Really, six albums that are yeah. kind of really underrated classics. So we're trying to shine a light on those. So the drummers on the roster are reimagining those songs. So it, that, that these are all new tracks cut oh, to wow. a theme. What's so, the way and what reissue are you putting in there? Uh, it's going to be a Bobby Hutcherson record. So okay, so that's nice. So this is going to be a, a twice a year thing you do. Twice a year, yeah. And then and what? It's, it's by subscription, and, right? Uh, it, we're just trying to do cool new stuff. That's all. Just something. The, the one of the things I felt taking the gig was that because I, you know, look, I stream music all, every day. Sure, I love it. You yeah. Know, but I miss that connection from the liner notes yeah. and from the package. So how can we get back to that and maybe go past it? 
and so we're we're just trying to. Uh, well, I'm in a vinyl hole. I'm doing. I you know I got a lot of records, and I you know I got good equipment to listen to them on, and I like yeah, it. Yeah. And like, and so you're on top of the newer Blue Note reissues too. You're, you're oh, yeah, you yeah. oversee all that stuff. Yeah, we got some great. We got an 80th anniversary coming up in 2019, and we got some really cool. And because there's a lot of audiophiles around now who are into the vinyl, you know, yeah. they're getting it. Vinyl's got an amazing sound, really distinctive. You know, it's a kind of distortion, really. You know, it's it's not it's not pure, and that's what's good about it. Yeah, it's, it's got some ugh, on yeah. it. You know that <laughs> that gives it a soul and a and a feel. Yeah, and some uh, more than others, depending on how many times it's been played, or yeah. you know, someone ate off it. You buy used records sometimes. You're like, what was this guy doing with this record? <laughs> What is that? How come I can't get this fingerprint off? Was he handling it with shellac it. on his hands? Yeah, right. Was he so high he melted? Like yes. his hands were on fire? That I could relate to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> definitely. His flesh to. was burning. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But so, oh, so that's it. But that's what you do. Like, if you have a question, you're like, go find the original wax, yeah. put it on, give it to the guy, tell just, him to match it. Yeah, just trust the initial impulse of the artist if everyone was if they were all slapping hands at the end saying yeah this is great who are we to editorialize right we were in the room man you know so sure and and if especially if it stands the test of time yeah why would you change anything there was one of all the reissues we've done in the last six and a half years one of my favorite albums ornette coleman live at the golden circle it's just a trio yeah david eisenson and charles moffett and we discovered that the t- the left and right side are out of phase on the original tape. <laughs> yeah. Okay? But because of that, the cymbals got this crazy sound. Right. But also because of it, the bass is a little blurry. Uh-huh. So we put it back in phase. Yeah. And the crazy sound on the cymbals went away. Yeah. And, but you could hear the bass really well. Yeah. What, what would you do? <laughs> I, well, it's, it's a tough question philosophically because yeah. if you want the record that people know... You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but but that's also one of those things where it's like, well, you fixed it. not But you didn't fix it in a way that was uh, ideological. You know, it wasn't like a, a preference thing. Yeah. It was like, no, this was engineered wrong, and this is what it sounded like. Well, here's- Unless Ornette did that on purpose. I'm, I guarantee you he didn't. It was done by an engineer yeah. in Stockholm who didn't realize that right. the mics were out of phase. Um, we, we put it in phase- but figured out how to get the crazy sound out of the cymbals. <laughs> and so it, it's got, because the, it's got a real quirky character. So, yeah. you, so it, it took it took weeks. Yeah. It really took weeks and, yeah. a, and a, lot of, a lot of people involved. Meticulous. But we got the quirkiness back in, but got it in phase. And I, I, that's the one time we editorialized. Oh, now I got to get that record. Yes, yeah, you, you can't lose with that record. It's, and it's new. You got a new reissue of it. Yeah, we, yeah a few years back. Well, we got to talk about the Stones before we go. Sure. Do some Stones talk because I talked to Keith and it was it was a it was a very fanboy interview. It was goofy. Yeah. I got him laughing. Yeah. He was he had a good time. Yeah. But like, you know, you did like what? This uh, Blue and Lonesome was the fifth Stones record you did? Yeah, I've done some live ones too, but fifth studio album. They all have these enormous personalities yeah and uh and they're all really different and they pull in different directions uh-huh. if you listen to any one track you go hmm i, I don't know <laughs> yeah. but when you when you put it together you realize that it's this perfect blend really quirky but really perfect and, and they're still I, like that 
oh, they're great, man. I, you know, I've played with them a number of times. Yeah. And you really understand it when you get inside of it because forget all the hypes yeah. and everything. It's a really jocular, loose, fun, musical conversation uh -huh. that's going on. Yeah. It's so much fun to play bass in the Rolling Stones. <laughs> 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 and and they, they're great listeners. They're like jazz musicians. Yeah. It, they never play it the same way twice. Someone does something, they hear it. You, you, you could tell just by talking to Keith, he's, yeah. he's fast. Yeah. He's quick, he's yeah. fast, he's sharp, uh -huh. he's really smart. Yeah. Charlie do some little thing on the hi-hat, Keith will react to it, it'll impact how Mick sings, Ronnie will play something back. It's, the interplay is so brilliant in this band. They're really on top of it that much in it. They're yeah. so yeah. in it. Yeah, and they still are. I saw them in Stockholm in October yeah. on this No Filter tour. They were awesome. They're not. They're not playing backtracks on there. They're playing live, all live. Oh, they, no... they they can't. Yeah, we did. Uh, I went with them to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and they were the first, maybe the only band to yeah. play completely live on this. So you have seven minutes from the end of the second quarter uh -huh. uh, to get the entire stage set up on the field and everyone to be balanced and tuned in. Yeah, and they didn't have Ronnie's guitar for like the first 30 seconds. Okay. And it was like, oh my, and we're, I was sitting in, actually, you know what my gig was? Yeah. My gig at the Super Bowl was that the ABC or whoever, I think it was ABC, the censors, yeah. didn't like two lines in the song. Um, uh, you, you make a dead man come yeah. and start me up. And yeah. Am I... Am I still your rooster baby, or am I just one of your cocks yeah. on uh, Rough Justice? Uh -huh. And I had to hit the uh, uh, the, the, the button, the mute button on yeah. Nick's microphone on cocks and yeah. come. Yeah. And if I missed it, it was like a five million dollar fine <laughs> they had to pay. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a thrill. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> you got it. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so like, but this last like, I was completely blown away by the the most recent record by Blue and Lonesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Because you know, people like me had been talking. I talked to Keith about it when I talked to him. I was like, well, why don't you guys do a booze record? Yeah. And they're like, he's like Dr. Mick, you know, like yeah. so. So when that happened, and you know, and I got it, and I was like, "Oh my God, they did it!" They like, I felt like, you know, like, uh, you, you know, like, I just felt like I was cheering in my car, like that it 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 worked because that's what they come from. That that record could have been their first album. Yeah. Do you know what I mean in yeah. terms of the song list? Yeah. Right. Abs absolutely. And yeah. and I was so impressed that you know not only the production but just how they got into those songs. And there, because the problem with the blues, if there is a problem, is that, you know, any idiot can play it. And God bless the idiots, and mm -hmm. I hope they're having a good time. Mm -hmm. But to own it, mm -hmm. you know, especially covers, yeah. Yeah. is no easy trick. No. So, you, you know, for them to own that, like, they own that whole record. Yeah. Because they're the fucking rolling stuff. It was one of those things where yeah. it's like, of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was, it was an accident. If, if we'd have said, <laughs> let's do a blues record, it never would have happened. Yeah. We were getting used to a new studio. We're at British Grove Studios at Mark Knopfler's place in London, which is a great studio, but yeah. we'd never been in there yeah. before. So just getting used to the headphones, it was a little awkward. So, so Keith, and I know he had it in the back of his mind anyway, the way to get everyone focused was to, he was holding on to Blue and Lonesome. The song. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, let's do Blue and Lonesome. Yeah. So they played it, and it was magnificent. And yeah. Thankfully, Chris Sharma, the engineer, hit record. Uh -huh. And we went in and listened to it. 
And, uh, you know, it was undeniable, right? <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah, well, let's, let's do another one. <laughs> and sure. And at the end of the first day, we'd done five blues songs. Now, no one said, hey, do another five. We got a blues album. Right. But we came back the next day and did more, but no one talked about it. It's a little like uh, a guy pitching a no-hitter. Yeah. No one talks about it in the dugout. You jinx it. Right. No one mentioned blues album. Right. And at the end of, like, Two and a half days, we had the whole record in the can, and still no one said, "Great, let's put out a blues Playing, album." All playing live, all live. There's not there's not a single overdub. The thing is, they were all in the same room, yeah. And a lot of the drum sound comes from the vocal mic, for example. Oh, so that's if, what that if he is? punched, right. if he punched a line, right, you'd lose the drums. So you right. couldn't fix anything. So that's exactly as it happened. That's amazing, and, yeah. and and like you know, Mick is like there's a because of that you know the sad thing that happened with that woman he used to date. Like mm. there's a lot of fucking recent blues in that guy, yeah. and you know, like he played the hell out of it, the harmonica, and he sang yeah. the shit out of some of those songs. He he's great on that record. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. No, nah, there there's something else. You know, they're they're really the the. They're giants who walk the earth. I'm not being hyperbolic. Oh, I was when I saw them live, and I hadn't seen them live since '81 in yeah. San Diego. Yeah. And they did, uh, you know, uh, in the encore, they did "Midnight Ramble," or maybe it was the last song. Mm -hmm. And like how that to know that that song is just five guys. Mm -hmm. You know, when you listen, like, because the original is, is it's its own thing. It's a studio yeah. thing. Yeah. But but the live version on 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 Get Your Yaya's Out is pretty astounding. Yeah. But then just to hear them do it, mm -hmm. like just basic fucking rock. Yeah. And they, it's just so big. There, I mean, one time. <laughs> I don't know what I think. Just, things in the 90s. Yelling about, like, yelling at you. <laughs> no. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your enthusiasm, <laughs> and I share it, you know. There's one time it, we were recording uh, Bridges to Babylon is in the 90s mid 90s yeah. we were over in hollywood at uh, what's now east west studios and it's a big room studio one it's where yeah. sinatra recorded with big orchestras and everything yeah and uh they, mick and keith and charlie were alone in the room everyone else was on dinner break yeah and i walked in to tell them something and these three guys their personalities so far <laughs> exceed the, the the boundaries of their skin yeah. that the room was full with the three of them standing. The, the, the person, if you could view the, if there was a charisma camera, yeah, they're like, remember when they used to have those blow-up dolls on the stage that were like right. five stories high? Yeah. That's who they are. Right, and yeah, they, yeah. And they have to contain that in the, in the normal <laughs> body. But they're just, they're larger than life cats and when it, they play together there's nothing like it you also did david crosby records willie nelson yeah. records chris yeah. christopherson so you work yeah. all angles of all types yeah it's, it's just there's just a couple kinds of music but man. like waddy yeah. wachtel's always around yeah, Waddy's, yeah. like and then there's a few other guys that are always around like the david yeah. crosby record how was that working with him oh, i love david yeah. it's great he's been over here yeah good, yeah really, he, i think know. he would have moved in <laughs> Trying to sell them the house. <laughs> <laughs> I got a deal for you, David. <laughs> and I'm I'm glad you're doing this thing with Blue Note. It was great talking to you. It's been a real pleasure. Do we cut? Do we cover enough? I, I feel confident about that. <laughs> yeah, good work on that Blake Mills album too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Blake. He's 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 a brilliant kid, and it's a real honor to play bass on that. Yeah. He's he's got good sound, man. He can do like he's yeah. one of those wizard kids where you're like, oh my yeah. god, it's from yeah. outer space, this guy. He's gonna be around for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's a real. Thing. It's interesting yeah. though because like you know he's got a great sense of, as a producer himself, right? Yeah. yeah. And he's got yeah. a great feel for a guitar, and he plays you know he plays amazingly well. Uh, you know, but like he seems to really be uh, ex ex 
excelling as a producer. He's got a real sense of of color. Yeah, you know, he he paints an impressionistic canvas mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like he, he it's it's really hard to do because every so much has been done already right and there's so many sure. electronic ways of getting to sounds that to come up with something fresh yeah that's not just sound for the sake of sound but is actually contributing emotionally to, yeah. the, to the record and he's great at that he's an analog cat he likes that he likes oh, the yeah. old toys oh, yeah. yeah like i talked yeah. to neil young i, I like you yeah. know neil young literally gets on stage with a rig for an amp rig where he doesn't know if it's going to make it through the show <laughs> and that that drives him he's yeah. like he, yeah. yeah no there's a there's a whole lot to be said for that there, there's there's just something about old gear in general certainly if you're talking about real instruments i just got a uh, Carlene Carter gave me a, a, a 1967 Fender Jazz that belonged to her dad, Carl Smith. And it's been sitting around since like pristine, new. But oh, the wood wow. has aged yeah. since 1967. And there's nothing like old wood. You, right. know, you, you cannot manufacture right. what that does to the sound, even really? on, on an electric instrument. So this is just the greatest bass I've ever played. Wow, uh, man. Uh, and I, I've been using it on everything. I always played Precisions for yeah. years. and. I, a, I even I said, well, I play Precision. So it's a jazz bass. I left it sitting for. Yeah. She gave it to me a few years back. This year, I pulled it out, and we're it's inseparable the best. now. Yeah, it's just the old stuff sounds better. I know. I, I like. I tend to buy new stuff, like that thing. That's the only one I got over here, but that's yeah. like an '86. Yeah. It's not even that old, but that's old now. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's kind of old. It's, now. it's got its own patina now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, years ago, um, the guys in the Fender Custom Shop uh, came up to my house when. Uh, we're doing the Stones. We're doing yeah. Lodge, and they made a guitar for Keith. And, oh, yeah. and, he, and, the, guy, and the guy is Jay Black. Yeah. Worked there, and he's really good. With oh, is this the one that he made exactly off that old blonde uh, telly? That Keith no, did? that was later. This oh. was just he made him a guitar, made oh. him a Strat, but it was all new looking. And yeah. Keith said, it's, "It's great, but I'm never going to play this thing." And I said to him, "I said, can't you?" Like uh, we we had a mic cabinet that was like some uh, something I got over at Arte de Mexico. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, it was, I'm sure it was two years old, but it looked like it was 300 years yeah. old. So can't you just distress a guitar? And the guy came back a couple years later. He said, "You gave me the idea for the Fender Relic series. So here is Relic number one." And he made me a precision bass yeah. with all 1963 parts on it. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and. And it's really good bass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it says Relic One on it, and that was 1993. So now it's older, and now it's getting its own patina. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so it, it's not only a Relic uh, manufactured right, Relic, but, but, but it's actually got some, uh, yeah, some yeah, grease on it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I have not bought a, a really old thing. I, these amps are. That's a that's an original champ there. That's like yeah, a, it's beautiful. 58, yeah. Are you playing through the Bell and Howell? That's a that's that's a that's you know his uh, Blake's guy yeah Blake's yeah, guy yeah that's his that's his he yeah. lives around the corner Austin oh yeah yeah right, what's his, is that his name I don't, I don't know the guy's name but they're Fuck. really good I I have one he, Blake gave me one yeah that's gonna bother me I don't want to like right, give let's the, get him yeah yeah give the guy short short uh, is it Austin Austin Hooks yeah right yes, Austin Hooks yeah he lives around the corner and this yeah. is the first one. This is the prototype. I don't. Wow. I don't know if he knows. I still have it. Like he said, because he would fix. He he fucking fixed that old champ for me, yes, or that yes. old uh, yeah. deluxe. And that's a sixty-five champ. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But he like you know he said you know he wanted me to play through one of these. So he, this is like the one his dad made the cabinet, and wow. he gave it to me. Said I just keep it so I don't sell it. So wow. I don't, like so I I've, I just had it. It's been years well, now. Now he's gonna know where it is. <laughs> you can have it back. <laughs> so they sound, I don't quite understand really it. Cool. I don't understand how to work it. This seems to be, it seems complicated to me. So. You mean like, 
Well, I mean, you plug inside, and then there's two plug, there's two yeah. holes, and I don't know what you know what oh, one she, knob means or what. I play well, it sometimes. Just mess with it. All right. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I don't do enough messing because I'm because yeah. every time I mess with something, I'm like, someone knows how to do this. Yeah. And I don't know. You know. No, but that's the all the all the cool stuff came from having no one around who knew how to do it, and it really is. You know, like yeah. I listen to the, like Motown records, yeah. right? And I knew those guys. I got to play with a lot of those guys when I lived in Detroit. And they were jazz musicians who were trying to imitate New York R&B records, and they got it wrong. Yeah. And they came up with something at least as good and <laughs> as enduring. You know? Yeah, But it, sure. it was because there was no one around to tell them how to do it. All right. Well, that, that's inspiring to me. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not going to be uh, uh, daunted. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fearless into just playing in my garage by myself. <laughs> All right, Don. Good talking to you. A pleasure, man. So that was Don was pretty interesting stuff about the Stones, right? You want me? I, I how's everybody? Okay, is it everybody okay? Um, so I'm gonna play a little guitar. You're right, everybody. All right, I'm just gonna do some wah wah and get out. All right, so the guy can smear cement on my house. Okay, I'll do this. I'm gonna do it.